Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post-Doom Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And this was recorded on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 2020. The very first conversation in this series in a post-coronavirus era. It's with Jem Bendel, one of the main inspirations for this series. The conversation begins. Well, to say that I've been looking forward to this conversation, Jem, would be a, a real understatement because your deep adaptation paper and so many of the things that you've written and produced video since then have been one of the major inspirations. I mean, I really consider your work, the deep adaptation work and the, the forum and the positive deep adaptation forum on Facebook and Catherine Ingram and Dar Jamel and Barbara Cecil and Paul Traferka, probably the four major, even though I think I'm older than you, you're an older brother on the path, on this path. And so at any rate, it's a joy to finally have this conversation. And, um, and you are the very first, as I mentioned in the email, all the other conversations that I've had have been in a uh, pre-coronavirus epic time. I mean, it, it, we're, we're no longer theirs. Um, we're living in a very different world, and I'd love to hear how you, how you frame and now interpret and now hold uh, and see your work in this um, post, or not post, but after coronavirus, in these coronavirus days. So at any rate, before we get started on that, I, for people who may not be familiar with you, if you could just take a few minutes and just give a little background um, in terms of, you know, what you're best known for, obviously the deep adaptation stuff, but help the viewer or the listener to sort of get who you are uh, in a nutshell. Sure, I can do that. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Michael, for the invitation. Uh, I am somebody who's known now uh, for the concept of, of deep adaptation, which is uh, a framework for uh, processing emotions uh, and thoughts around uh, a near-term societal collapse um, induced by climate change, not only climate change, but, but that being the, the thing which makes it uh, inevitable. Um, so I'm known for that, uh, mainly because of a paper I wrote in July 2018, which went viral, uh, which was the first paper I wrote on that topic. I'd given a speech on the topic about a year before when I was still sort of sensing my way into this way of looking at, at life. Because prior to that, I'd been a professor uh, in a business school on sustainability, mm -hmm. uh, corporate social responsibility, sustainable enterprise, sustainable finance, that kind of thing. So based on the idea that we can, with innovative radical thinking, change the system, reform the system in time to somehow preserve our way of life and uh, within within the ecosystems we live in. So that's, yeah, and that, that I've done that work. Sustainable development is the broad framework. I've done that work as, a, as an activist, as, uh, are, you, are, you, are you hearing yeah, uh, I, noises in the background? I, I, I can hear the dog. <laughs> yeah, so um, I can't do anything about that. That's the problem well, of living well, in it. Yeah. We'll, just, we'll just deal with it, not a problem. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I'd, um, I worked at the UN, I worked at WWF, the environmental group. I worked in uh, also anti-globalization groups um, and as a corporate strategy consultant and as a political communications consultant. So lots of things, um, but broadly framed by this idea of sustainable development. One of the things I've appreciated about your more recent um, framing of this, and for anybody watching or listening to this, know that I've thought so highly of Jem's work that on my SoundCloud, I have about 15 of his uh, essays all audio recorded. Um, how would you describe where you think or feel this work is now in light of this latest economic 
contraction collapse um, and this coronavirus uncertainty uh, that's more than uncertainty. It's like, this is, this is huge. We've never known anything like this in our lifetime. So I'm just curious, how has that shifted anything for you? Uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly um, brought things more into the present moment. So a lot of my work, uh, while recognizing that people around the world, millions of people are being affected by uh, climate chaos already, uh, whether they are climate refugees or whether they're just living closer to the land and losing their, their harvests, um, the, the many of people like us, um, or whether they're even exposed to diseases like dengue fever, which are spreading around the world much more rapidly because of climate change. So there's a lot of people who have been suffering for decades already because of climate chaos, but the deep adaptation framework really took off amongst people um, mainly in the West um, who uh, sort of educated middle classes, I guess, who for, for them it was the first time that climate change really became a, connected to their own sense of personal vulnerability. This is about me and my family. This is about whether I can stay in my job. This is, this is about whether I, the supermarkets will empty. So it, it suddenly became much more about, about us, um, but still uh, about how do I, how do I process that emotionally and intellectually uh, with that anticipation? Um, and what do I do? What do I do with, with my job, with my community, with my politics, whatever. But yes, it, was, it wasn't so here and now in the way that coronavirus uh, in the last weeks has become very much here and now. So um, for example, um, two years ago, my father, he lives in a, um, he has a flat in a, there's maybe, I don't know, eight neighbors, and they have a gorgeous ornamental garden. Two years ago, and they're all retired. Um, uh, and I, I said, Dad, um, you know how your dad used to just love spending all his time growing veg and, and berries and everything in his back garden? Yeah, um, you should start doing that. Um, exactly. <laughs> uh, you have this gorgeous ornamental garden mm -hmm. um, and actually uh, why not put half of it over to food because it's also walled garden which is kind of handy if you're actually yes. didn't want to talk about the dark side of the future and the futility ultimately of growing your own food if everyone around you is starving but it, <laughs> this is a nice way of also the other side of it was inviting more cooperation in, in his, amongst his neighbours it's, but it's very different now where I'm, we've got a family WhatsApp group where I'm saying, uh, uh, Dad, now, now's the time to have that conversation because um, we do not know what the future holds. We do not know. We, we have seen in Britain um, how awful the government is uh, at various levels, but the way that they can't seem to have moral clarity and courage and, and stick to truth, uh, uh, they'll just keep it's like everything they say is involving some kind of cover-up or distraction um and and um yeah so it's like right now having those conversations right now yeah. so yeah i've been walking around with some kind of latent low-level sense of panic um and so it's a bit of a wake-up for myself about yeah. where i'm at in my own personal development psychosocial spiritual no psycho-spiritual sorry um, I've only had one coffee this morning. Um, Psycho-spiritual, um, yeah, development. So the I am not this um, fully equanimous, instantly in open-hearted, clear-sighted advisor of the masses or even my dad about what to do. Um, so and, well, and actually, probably, hold on. I want to probably neither are you, and neither yeah, are you. No, exactly. Neither is exactly. Any, I'm this. Neither That's is exactly it. So, but I do, I do yeah. appreciate, I want to, I want to just jump in and say this, that of all the things you've done or that I'm aware of, cause I've not read everything, but the thing that I love to lead people in with is your, the, the one on don't police our emotions, which oh, was yeah. sort of an addendum to your, you know, yearly, you know, a year after deep adaptation. But what I love about that one so much is that you, you really define equanimity, not as serenity, not as just everything's cool. It's basically being be truly accepting, including your grief, your anger, your frustration, your confusion. I mean, it's, it's really 
a radical acceptance of what's so, what's real in the moment, both internally and externally. And, and I just think that's right on the money. Uh, yeah, thanks. And that, that's, that's okay. So there's a number of things I have learned since I have no longer had the, um, the, I, the, the support for, um, the, the defensive supports of my identity. So, so that's what's the big thing of the deep adaptation outlook is, is it's that, that suddenly, oh, my old story of contribution and self-worth from, from contribution sort of dissolves. And, and yes, it's been a real push for me to look at my inner world and to not just read books about stuff, but actually to spend time, for example, in insight meditation. Um, it's called Vipassana. I, I've uh, done a 10-day Vipassana meditation okay. with my son, and he's done about uh -huh. 20 of them. In fact, I just married. Uh -huh. I just performed the wedding in Columbia, South America right. of my son, who's 34, and his 31-year-old uh, bride now, and they met at a 30-day at a Vipassana meditation retreat. All right. Okay. But they weren't meant to speak or even look at each other, so that must have been some they spiritual, met, they, transpersonal it, connection. It's really, it's really fun. It was right before the 30-day began, my son was hmm. serving. He was in the kitchen. They interacted for 30 seconds and he walked away and thought to himself, who is that angel? <laughs> and then he had to wait 30 days to talk with her again. <laughs> He's a keeper. Yeah. So, so I've also even noticed that uh, humor and comedy, which I love, is also a flight from pain. So, um, so seeking bliss through meditation, flight from pain. Um, seeking uh, avoidance of fear of impermanence and our own personal death through believing that absolutely there's an afterlife and there'll be some walking, talking soul called gem somewhere, somehow. Um, that's also flight from, 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 from fear and, and pain. Uh, beginning to, and even um, me being a smart thinker and talker and communicator is, is trying to uh, escape um, the unknowability of the existence we have and the uncertainty of the future, uh, it's an escape into cleverness. So, so what I've got from, yeah, the crumbling of my old stories of self and, uh, and being in that despair has been to, 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 to talk to people who value the importance of pain and difficult yes. emotions. Who, who yes. They sometimes talk about shadow, they sometimes talk about um, welcoming the darkness as much as the light. Um, uh, they, but yeah, but Vipassana is one method, but also just talking to incredible wise women is my other recommended method. <laughs> I'm with you 100%. Yeah. Uh, occasionally a wise man like Paul Traferka too, uh, I found very right. helpful. But mm -hmm. yes, the, the women in my life who um, regularly uh, exude wis wisdom, we, we just were spent quite a bit of time up in the Pacific Northwest and I got a chance to spend time with Barbara Cecil and I've known Barbara for 20 years, but it was just, you know, she's one of those souls that uh, exudes wisdom. And of course, Joanna Macy, I, she yeah. became a mentor in 1988 and uh, I'm just eternally grateful for that relationship. As well. So I'm just going to express some essentialist feminism here is that I think that maybe women are less pain averse than us guys, both in terms of physical and emotional yes, pain. Yes, and therefore they're able to turn towards it rather than instinctively turn away from it or rise above it with being trying to be clever and smart and yeah. pontificate about everything. That's very interesting. So, no, so therefore, wise women are, are who we should all be listening to and, and um, as, as we, as a culture, are collectively traumatized now by this situation. Yeah. Um, so the handicap you and I have is that we're, we risk being two white guys uh, uh, telling other people how to think. And uh, we've had a lot of that, haven't we? Um. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I love these conversations. I mean, for me, post-Doom, yeah. it actually, it, it, just even the concept came about because I was having more and more conversations um, who had moved beyond the grief, but it wasn't they were in avoidance. It was like there's a, there's a, there's a door, there's mm. something possible on the other side of despair, on the other side of grief that isn't about denying that. And it's not about denying our mortality, including our species mortality, but it's fully embracing the totality of life and then finding ways to be compassionate and generous and in action on that other side. And that's, yes. that seems to me holy territory. There we go. Is that recorded? So we, we should, I should just have you speaking then 
just every every 10 minutes on my phone all day you know just that exactly just what you said holy territory as well you you say it preach it yeah thanks can i feel what is your church uh, I was originally ordained in the United Church of Christ, but now the last 18 years, Connie and I have spoken to, I don't know, 2,700 groups across North America, every kind of religious and secular setting imaginable. So it's a very weird lifestyle, but we love it. It's, you know, mm -hmm. I'm speaking to you from Eureka, California. We're here for, well, we think we're here for another month and a half, but with Corona, we could be here longer than that. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But where we speak at is where science, inspiration, and sustainability intersect. But now I don't even like sustainability for exactly some of the reasons you've written about. It's, it's like deep adaptation. It's right relationship to reality. And frankly, I think that there's a very good chance, as you articulate, that, well, I, I, it seems to me that homo colossus is destined for extinction. You know, industrial rapacious humanity absolutely goes extinct, probably pretty soon. That may or may not mean the extinction of homo sapiens, um, but it could, and and the societal collapse of one form. I mean, we have over a hundred examples of, of 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 civilizations, unsustainable civilizations, collapse. So what you're saying from a deep time perspective and a historical perspective is so non-controversial, and yet you've got these prophets of progress like Stephen Pinker out there that are getting people's attention. And so you have to make, and we have to make, and others that are part of the series have to make, you know, the case, but to not do it arrogantly, just to basically accept people make a difference where we can and you know move from there it's interesting you use the word prophets of progress that that does connect with the with the idea that um the the assumption uh, of progress and the valuing of progress exactly. is so sacrosanct in uh not just in american or western culture but now pretty much everywhere um that it feels like it's somehow it's somehow disgusting to be talking about anything other than an assumption of progress. And so we do see that with um, uh, environmental and climate scientists, that they feel that in order to be respectful and respectable, they must conclude at the end that, oh, but we can still do this, um, whoever the we is. And, um, and, uh, and then the problem, therefore, is that people who say, well, well let's have a wider conversation, not, not give up on trying, but, but open up to a wider conversation about, well, what if we're not going to do this? And therefore, yeah. how do we, what's still true? What's still good? Yes. And therefore, we, immediately you start thinking about, well, what's my truth? What's most important to me? Am I, what delusions am I living? Um, how do we reduce harm? Uh, how do we stay curious and stay present to this stuff? As you say, the totality of existence, not lean into it, not turn away from it. Um, and a big part of it is, is how do we um, uh, try and be somehow uh, intellectually rigorous, but, but, but not pretend that all our ways of all our models and our disciplines and our ways of having authority on, on, on the way the world is um, actually matter now. I mean, that's, and the problem is many climate scientists can't do that and uh and they, and they get triggered by people like me yes um but i have that's another big impact on for me on the last 18 months is to learn to learn not to uh i've had to learn in an in an emo actual visceral emotional way yeah. um not to be affected by um people sort of telling stories that suit their own purposes about what this person called Jim Bandel is or what he thinks um it's quite a peculiar one. Oh yeah i mean you you're an enormous way. magnet you you draw people's projections on all kinds of things. that's why i loved how you dealt with it so in my mind or so effectively in that uh, don't police our emotions piece and some of your other work yeah yeah so so now i mean you mentioned coronavirus so, so um assuming the internet's up this is an important time for learning yeah. um I have noticed in me and in other people the way that we deal with um, stress, um, so anxiety, uncertainty, uh, and and also more more near near term risks to ourselves. For example, um, fear of, of being uh, disciplined somehow by an employer for just unilateral action. Often, what we do is uh, we complain. Um, and so in the last two weeks, 
I've had lots of colleagues, family members and friends complaining, and I have been complaining yes, about yes. management, about government officials, about politicians, about the human race in general, and we complain and we complain, and, and it, it actually, what it, I've realized what it does, it provides on some strange level an excuse for not living your own truth right now. Yeah. And, and this happened yesterday, a colleague, he, he on the phone for half an hour complaining about management, uh, complaining that they still haven't done it and all these other universities have done it and da da da. Oh, sorry, Jim, I need to go and teach my students. It's like, uh, excuse me, um, uh, just don't go. Oh, well, I can't, well, we haven't decided yet. Da, da, da. Well, just, just put a note on the door. Otherwise, you know, complaining won't, you know, compl complaining about management doesn't stop you from dying and it doesn't stop you from spreading, spreading the virus. So there is that, there is this, so it, <laughs> Being in it, I mean, this, this is either a dress rehearsal for what's to come in terms of societal breakdowns, um, or it's, um, it's the, the beginning of stages. it. Yeah. yeah, it's the early stages. And I, and I think on some, some levels, it is the early stages because even if it dies down in the Northern Hemisphere this summer, it's a mass, it's, it's a huge long-term economic impacts, yes. totally, totally um, wrong-headed subsidies. Corp socialism for corporations is going to happen. It's going to put a drag on the states, put a drag on, on, um, on normal sort of business as usual and so forth. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's yet another, well, it's a great big tree trunk on the camel's back, but um yeah um so we'll see what happens but um it, it means that we can learn a lot through looking at looking at ourselves and the, the problem is we we don't know quite how to do that in dialogue with others whether um because we have these old stories of what it means to be respectable and polite and and we keep we instinctively blame other people for what's going on emotionally inside us um, so I'm really, what we've been doing with the Deep Adaptation Forum is inviting people to find new ways of relating. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've borrowed from things like authentic relating practices and circling practices, sometimes called conscious relating. Mm -hmm. And it's to really um, bring all, all of who you are, all your emotions, all your confusions, but own it as what's going on in you. No one's to blame, it's in you. And that you, you share it vulnerably in pursuit of connection and learning together recognizing that the sort of more censored ways of showing up um, where we avoid stuff from, um, has, has allowed us collectively to be suicidal, um, to have, have, have ignored threats, um, well, ignored horrors around the world already, but also yes. ignored existential threats. Um, yes. So it's insanity. It's insanity, and it's because we just want to be liked. So I've been talking a little bit about the, the psychology um, and how we, we sort of censor ourselves and therefore we don't explore possible truths. Mm -hmm. um, we don't allow for uh, uncertainty, pain, um, uh, and so on, in, uh, particularly in the public sphere. Um, but also, yes, that's connected to this demand for positivity, which is connected to the demand for assuming progress and seeking progress. Right. And I think it's because we, we, people can't perceive an alternative of, of, you know, how do you get out of bed in the morning and how do you show up at work? And exactly. um, I've been exploring that. I know that some of your guests have talked about other frames for thinking about you know, post-doom, mm -hmm. post-progress frames. And um, I'm exploring the idea of, of a frame of um, retreat. So it's, it's, um, you could call it, I know the one option would be to call it an age of retreat, but that can also sound quite sort of historical and therefore assuming that one day we'll look back right. on the age of retreat. So right, right. I think maybe more just talking about a culture or a paradigm of retreat, which where I mean a retreat from and by um, industrial consumer society. Yeah. Uh, and, and, a, and what that can also be is like then a retreat into good things, a retreat into uh, a, a retreat from 
doing into being a retreat from um, assuming impacting on everything else is good into um, just uh, uh, being curious and, 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 and receiving and responding. Um, there's, so I'm, I'm a, a retreat away from um, telling everyone what to do and, and, and a retreat into awareness. Um, yes. So I'm, I'm exploring that as a possible philosophical framework. Uh, I like these it. Will, they'll all be, every, everything, I mean, I'd love to know if other people have said that before or if there's a better framing. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's different metaphors, different models, uh, archetypes, and certainly the retreat. I mean, I like the prodigal species, but, you know, that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily imply that we're going to survive this mess, uh, especially given abrupt climate change. Things could wig out easily. Um, but, but I love the retreat in this sense that if there's anything that the coronavirus is doing is it's forcing us to retreat from so many things that really were superficial anyway. I mean, it's really, uh, I've had, I don't think, five conversations just in the last three days with family and others. And it seems to be all around that we're really getting a clear sense of what really doesn't matter. And yet we've been treating it as if it did matter. What matters and what matters most? And those two frames of what really doesn't matter and what matters most are becoming really clear for a lot of people. Yeah. So I've, 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 you know, there are typical phrases like first things first, and I've used that with colleagues and uh, family members. And so, yes, absolutely. Retreating from caring what your boss will be, that your boss will be upset. I mean, it's like uh, saying, I said to someone, yeah, okay, great. But your boss doesn't own your body. You, you don't have to go and do something right. <laughs> if it's going to spread risk. Um, exactly. And, exactly. and, and you, you know, leadership, okay, it's great that we're doing all sorts of things to try and change ideas and communicate online and write letters to union officials and management. Um, but also you, the first thing you can lead with is just where you put your body. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah, it's a, there's so much to learn from this current dilemma. Also, for example, the whole prepping thing, um, mm -hmm. I chose not to prep when I realized that there could be near-term societal, well, there will be near-term societal collapse. I have no idea where it starts or when. Yes. Uh, and, and I know lots places, of people. As you said before, it already has started. Yeah, exactly. And so some people immediately look to, to, to prep and some people in a quite sophisticated way. So they move to the country, they, mm -hmm. they choose where they go for all kinds of reasons. They install their own independent off-grid um, utility stuff you know so i decided not to do that because i went on a road trip around greece and i realized that you really are totally dependent on industrial civilization anyway yeah. for your plas plastic piping and spare parts and all sorts um and and also that i didn't really want to didn't really want to train in how to fight and uh, you know and all that <laughs> so i thought i'd just go down loving as it were as opposed to go down fighting now I'm a thousand percent with you. I mean, this is, if, yeah. I, if I'm overprepared and my neighbors aren't, I mean, am I going to be, I mean, most of us aren't sociopaths and psychopaths. We're not going to let mm -hmm. our neighbor's kids starve if we've got food. Mm -hmm. I'd rather die with my neighbors, frankly. Yeah. So I, 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 I did all this thinking before, but then I'm still going around a um, supermarket three weeks ago, uh, um, stacking up lots of tins of tuna and sardines even though I'm, I'm I've been vegan recently um, and 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 pasta and, and and so forth and I'm thinking well you know just just being responsible about responsible about me and my partner's own food supply for the three weeks in case everything shuts down yeah. and then feeling and then a mix of emotions one is you're, this is stupid, this won't work, or, oh, this is selfish, I thought you were going to go down loving, not, not go down shopping. Um, and, then, and, then, and then the other thoughts is, this isn't good enough, you need twice as much. Um, and, and then the other thoughts are like, oh, you, you need to tell all your neighbours. Um, yes. And I have done, but they've just laughed. Um, I think it's changing right now. Yes, um, exactly. But, but yeah, it's... it's I've I've realized then that prepping was was really a okay it's a tiny bit useful but not really and 
I mean, it is useful because we have just-in-time supplies of all foodstuffs. Of course, of uh, course. So, so it can just break like that. And so, you know, why be the first person to be walking the streets like a zombie asking for food? I think most of us that are paying attention, at least, have felt everything you just articulated. I mean, mm. I, I, my, we were just given the notice yesterday from the, from the uh, governor of California, the state of California, that if you're over 65, you should not leave the house. Well, my wife, Connie, is 67. And so uh, we talk about it today and tomorrow we're putting a, a, a note in mm -hmm. the mailbox of all of the neighbors. And I'm even saying I'm, I was wearing gloves when I <laughs> sealed the envelope. But okay. I'm basically saying if you're over 65 or if you get sick and you need groceries, I'm happy to go grocery shopping and leave it yeah. on your porch. And Brilliant. we're seeing that kind of neighborliness. And I didn't get yes. this idea. It didn't come from me. Somebody told me they did that. And I thought, well, that's a brilliant idea. Hmm. So the, this is really, really important. I'm, and um, because the other, the, what I was talking about was the when something becomes immediate right now, and then, and you, it's almost like embodied learning. Like I had done my thinking, but I'm, it's a totally different experience pushing a trolley around the supermarket, thinking, "What am I doing? How am I thinking? Who am I thinking about? What is yeah. is this really meaningful, coherent action, and all that." But, but there's another so that's but there's another thing which is okay what is best to do to be helpful right now to be kind and wise right now and yes, exactly. what you've just said is is one example of it and uh, and i'm wondering because uh, i was going to ask you how you're feeling with with connie getting and you getting that notice but, but and i i do want to know that um but also how you've just reacted um how do we how do we spread that? How, how uh, you found out through someone told you? I was thinking we it'd be really good to 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 spread that. I don't know if it's being spread through mass media. Well, um, I I don't know, but I know that Connie came up with an idea this morning that just rocked my world because I I had not thought about it, and there was something morally wow when she said it. She wrote it up, and we've not even I think I think she shared it with just a few colleagues so far. But essentially, it was it was like a pledge. She was she was appealing to boomers and older, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. boomers and beyond, and she said, um, "I'm inviting you to join me in this pledge, which is to not overwhelm the healthcare systems, it, uh, and because that could easily happen. It's already happened in Italy, and it, it could it's projected to happen in lots of other places. And so, speaking for herself, she said, "If I get coronavirus, I refuse." to be taken to the hospital unless there's clearly beds and whatever available. But if not, I'm going to ride this one out. And if it means that I die, then I'm going to actually feel good because I've lived 67 years. I've lived a pretty wasteful lifestyle with it, you know, not being conscious. She's been an environmentalist and everything else, but still been living a part of this culture. And um, it feels redemptive to be able to say, I accept my mortality and I don't accept the need to clog up a bunch of ICU units when there are other people that are younger. Uh, so she's basically making this appeal on behalf of the youngers, the younger generation, that people who are over 65, only if they're volunteer, I mean, nobody's forcing anybody to do this, but basically it's, it's willing to say, I'm willing to die if need be. I'm going to ride this out. And hmm. how do you feel about, how do you feel about it? I'm, t I'm torn because on the one hand, I genuinely admire, Connie and I both have a, sacred, meaningful, inspiring approach to mortality and death. For years, we did programs on a sort of sacred science approach to death. So that's easy for us. But when it comes down personal, and I think the possibility in the next, say, two months of her contracting it, and then maybe there's only a, you know, five or 6% possibility that she could be among those who die or need ICU. And, and I've promised to not override her. And mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I'm torn because I'd so honor her in that and I will honor her in that. And yet for me to say that I don't feel some anticipatory grief if that became real uh, would be a lie. So yeah. it's a very interesting place. I, I do believe that baby boomers who expect to be kept alive at whatever the cost to the system and whatever the cost of the next generations are doing the next generations a, 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 a horrific injustice that, uh, you know, the, 
we don't factor in, you know, I, I used to do this program where I had this guy in ICU and I say, now imagine this guy is 81 years old. He's had a fabulous life, an enormous legacy. And in his last seven months of his life, he's kept alive at like this at the cost of 46 college educations. What's his net legacy? And I have all these white haired people in the audiences. They're nodding. They don't want to be, they don't want their dying months to be such a burden on the next generations. And yet that's all the incentives in the healthcare system, at least in the United States, to do it that way. So in that sense, I deeply honor this approach that Connie's has, but yeah, I got some feelings about it too. So yeah, there's the broader issue of a medical system uh, culturally, but also economically, that, and a social care, private social care system as well, that, that yeah. um, and, and our death phobic culture, which right, means exactly. that the proper conversations and voluntary euthanasia is just not looked at. Um, but that is and, one of the things that yes, we've done differently. Right. We, we, we gave both sides of our family a living will 10 years ago. And where mm -hmm. we didn't see death as the enemy, we didn't see it as a problem, we didn't see it as a result of human sin or whatever. I went through cancer treatment 10 years ago where there was a short period where I thought I could die quickly. And so I've been at peace with my own mortality in a less than just abstract kind of way. But still, this coronavirus, to come back to that, is bringing everything, all of our theories, all of our talk, all of our planning, all of our everything, right up front and, and, and focused. And um, I think it's providing, it's certainly I can speak for myself, it's providing an opportunity for me to not take my life for granted, the game that Connie and I are playing is that this will be our last year. Now we're just playing this game in our mind, in our hearts, but we're imagining how would we live our lives? What would our relationships be like if within 12 months we died? And mm. that is the most fruitful, spiritually nourishing practice um, perhaps in my life. That's quite, that's a very simple and powerful and perhaps the most significant example of what we were talking about earlier, which is not escaping the pain of being alive, um, not trying to numb the pain or, or, or avoid un future unbearable pain and just recognize it as an aspect of life. And, um, and therefore, to truly love something, you have to know that that will mean there'll be more pain. And that's just yeah. how it is. Exactly um, I, so, yeah, definitely. I, I think, though, that the, there's, a lot, there's, a, there's, there's a lot that holds us back in our culture from just being with that. Um, you know, we want to we we sort of move on and sound uh, confident and... Um, and uh, find ways to, to, to be okay with it all. But yeah, it's, uh, I'm just thinking with, with, is that something that we want to, that, no, I say we, I'm wondering if that idea spread, a pledge, um, everything can have positive and negative implications. If it becomes a sense of, virtue signaling and therefore becomes sort of um, something that people feel that oh yeah i should do that too because all my neighbors have committed to the pledge and yeah. and then if it if it gets if you then add in a bit of social pressure from patriotism and yeah, leaders yeah. leaders saying the same thing uh then it it becomes quite quite worrying yeah no, um, this is really good i'm glad you're saying this mm, because already hospitals have their methodologies they don't really shout about them but they do they look at you know the the number of viable living years of various different patients and they do have to make decisions about mm -hmm. about and, and unfortunately the sad thing is those decisions are being made now in italy about who they try and focus on treating and keeping alive exactly um so it is it is there already and we yeah do you need to be careful about it um i think it is the time in our death phobic culture right now to have conversations about death in families and also then to make amends. I mean, the fourth R in the fourth R in uh, the deep adaptation framework is reconciliation. And that can, so right now I would, 
in the same way you've talked about this might be your last year with Connie, then what is it that you most want to say to each other? So, and also my brother messaged me the other day and said, write a letter to each of mum and dad as if, as if this is it, um, not as an email, but, and, and not with any sort of, sort of melodrama, but just a really nice, kind, gentle letter on a piece of paper. Yes. Um, because yeah, we, we, we don't all live together. Um, I'm on the other side of the world right now and not able, I, will, I mean, I, won't be able to get back now for months right um so yeah it's it is an invitation for that kind of conversation and it i've had i've wanted to have those conversations with my mom and my dad both in their 70s for a few years but then i thought you know it felt a bit odd to like maybe give them as a present uh die wise <laughs> like, a wonderful I, book right? i know i know but so um it's uh Grief walker, it, 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 yeah. an hour and 10 minutes, you get sort of a, a Stephen Jenkinson, you know, hit in that little documentary, Grief Walker. All right, then. So I'll, I'll send them a link to that um, and ask for, ask for a conversation immediately afterwards. Um, I've actually done that with my family. I've, I've, okay. I've, I've, I've purchased several copies of the DVD offered mm -hmm. to my family and there's been a couple of conversations that I've had. My kids have all watched it, my first wife, my mother hasn't watched it, but it's, it's one of the better tools that I found that we found in terms of even opening up that conversation. Yeah. So another aspect of, I mean, this is the first conversation I've sort of had um, publicly for where, where it's a, my views. I mean, I keep doing my monthly Q and A's, but this is right, the first sure. one since October because I wanted to be less prominent and just do a bit more exploration. But, yeah. but yeah, it's, so it's the first time I've talked about coronavirus and, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I think I should say, so it's, it's, it has come as a bit of a surprise to the, the, the core team and the 50 plus volunteers is deep adaptation. Uh, I'm very grateful to, some of the, the the volunteers who in January were saying, Jim, this is so important. This is, could be really massive. And although it's not directly climate related, it's it's so related to right. the whole deep adaptation framework and philosophy uh, about preparing for collapse and being kind and wise in that context. And and so, yeah, I am I am wanting, uh, we will announce quite soon and put out through all the networks, about 15,000 people in our networks. Um, we're we're, we're going to invite the, the off more people to step up and, and organize online deep listening circles yes. for people to express and connect around difficult emotions. And then perhaps a second step would be online, the, the death cafe format, um, yeah. where people in small groups just sit and talk about their relationship with death. Yeah. Yeah. just as a just to, because if so you know if 70 percent of most populations are going to get this and then death rates for over 70s are 15 percent if or something if so yeah there will be yes. you know, a lot of a lot of loss yes. um so yeah um holding that and help and especially when we've got physical distancing of people um holding that so yeah i'm i'm um although i'm not the boss of the deep adaptation forum um i realize that if i if i pump if i put out my own view on blogs and newsletter and stuff it can help trigger things make things Absolutely. happen so Absolutely. i'll be doing something this week on that um yeah. and i think in a way that recognizes that there's very professional ways of holding space and there's very professional ways of um, um in groups but also uh, counseling people one-to-one -one. Yeah. but but while recognizing that um inviting people to just step up as as you know people who just know how to switch on a zoom meeting and 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 have a have a conversation yes. um recognizing it doesn't replace the need for professionalism and doesn't replace the need to um learn about better practice but but that shouldn't be in in a time like this that shouldn't be the way the reason for not going ahead and trying to start things exactly
exactly. Well, you know, I'm curious. Uh, uh, I don't want to get too philosophical or too abstract, but I'm curious, how do you and Katie hold impermanence, uh, mortality, death? Like, how do you hold that fact of individual and ultimately collective mortality in ways that you find nourishing or, or that, that, um, that help you lean into reality rather than lean away from it? Sure. Uh, you've, you've mentioned Katie there, my partner. Um, I, I don't, I don't, uh, she, this is a big, big topic for her, perhaps essential organizing principle for her in life. Um, but I, I haven't talked to her about ever sort of talking about her. Uh, so I, c I can't really go into that. Sure. Um, not yet anyway. Maybe she can be on your show one day. I would um, love that. Yeah. Uh, just, I should say I've learned a lot from her on yeah. this, uh, um, like, but I'm like a, a D grade student in terms of learning from her on this. Um, cause I've still been operating this past year with a story of sort of heroic action because suddenly deep adaptation took off. So I got really busy. Yeah. So I haven't got too down with death in my own life. Um, so maybe some period of isolation now will be good for reflection on that. Anything that you'd like to say about, um, well, I, I would specifically invite you to say something about the four R's. Most of us have found those so helpful of the deep adaptation framework. And I don't want to assume anybody or everybody watching or listening to this will be familiar with that. So if you could just, just do a quick recap of, of why these four R's, what, what you found value in them and where others have found value. We live in a, a, a culture of positivity, a culture of progress. And uh, when um, the future, the only certain thing about the future is that life normal, normal's finished uh, and things are gonna break down and we don't know how and when and, and where. Um, within that context, um, it's helpful to have some sort of almost like anti-progress ways of thinking about what's important so it's uh okay if everything is going to change what's most important to me i mean that's a that's a quite straightforward conversation to have mm -hmm. and there's no i would suggest there shouldn't be any fixed answer to that it's it's a constant inquiry so i uh, the r's i mean i just came up with labels for them and and yeah but go ahead and mention those okay so the first is uh, is resilience what do we want to keep second is relinquishment what do we give up on a, or it makes things worse. Um, restoration, what can we bring back to help? And reconciliation with what or whom should we make peace with uh, in the face of our mutual mortality? Um, I deliberately stayed away with what can we regenerate or what, what, you know, what can we revive? Uh, sorry, regenerate. I, I didn't want that um, idea that this, this hint that it will be okay because my truth is is I don't know. I don't know what form of human society or civilization is ahead for us. I don't know. I mean, I do know many people will do amazing things with loving, loving kindness and, and wisdom, no matter what's happening. I don't know what that will add up to uh, at a collective scale. Um, I know there'll be horrible behaviors as well. I, I, I just don't know. But what I do know is that you can try and be kind, loving, and, and promote beautiful stuff no matter what. So that's that's kind of, I mean, uh, speaking to a reverend here, um, I realize that for me, that's that's the 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 meaning of Christian hope mm. is is not a a material hope and is is it's a it's um it's a conviction in there being goodness to be found and to be lived no matter what. Um, that's, that's it. And I think, I know that the theologian, theologians over the centuries in different denominations have argued about this. And I think that an old Catholic notion of hope is that yes, no, we're bodily resurrection and all that. But yeah, I'm, yeah mm -hmm. just to be clear, I'm an eco theologian. So for me, Ooh. Gaia universe is divine. And, mm -hmm. and for me, hope, it's not about, 
hoping for something otherworldly or supernatural or mm -hmm. something that gets me out of death. It's trusting the reality of the ecological patterns, the evolutionary patterns, which includes death. So yeah, what you were just saying about um, a philosophy on existence uh, and uh, the future in, with deep time, infinite time, uh, can be helpful. Uh, when one begins to understand uh, or fe have a felt sense of impermanence and death. Uh, and yeah, I realized that just expanding my sense of self to include Gaia, um, if it's not done in a sort of a naive bliss seeking way, then it's also expanding to include the pain yes. of, of not just death because that's part of Gaia, but, but kind of like unnecessary suffering, right? The idiocy that leads to, that, that creates more pain and more death, but also then adds stories of suffering and, uh, on top of the pain and the loss. So, so, so but then I realized that, yeah, I, I felt like I'd, it would be helpful to expand my sense of connection to the, the potentiality for this kind of life in an infinite universe, then the fact that it exists now means that, that it has potential to happen again, uh, both here and other, other places in the universe. And isn't that stunning and amazing and wondrous and awe-inspiring? Yeah. Now, now that is, is kind of, it works for me. Yeah. Um, but I also recognize it is in the realm of storytelling yes. in possibly to, well, definitely to avoid the pain that comes from um, a, a pain that's based on a belief that I am a significant piece of the conscious universe right here, right now. Uh, so this story I've just said is attractive because it kind of deals with that existential pain. And what I've learned is that well that what is true isn't that story that story is our my story our story we don't really know what's true and we don't even know if we can know what's true because we just right. have our limited senses and cognition right. and conceptualization and all this right. um and so in the end i just have to be able to live with the unbearability of that i might i might be totally insignificant in the universe uh, and <laughs> But uh, if your if your if your larger body is the universe, then that's well, okay yes. too. You know? Well, absolutely. So I I know that um, I've had glimpses of this in 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 a range of different practices, breath work, vipassana meditation. Um, uh, I've had glimpses of it where I've been deeply distraught about how life is, and I've gone into nature. So being in the presence of gorgeous ancient trees um with fear and death on my mind mm -hmm. also i think somehow connects me to to that way of experiencing life as as so so great and wondrous that i'm just grateful to be having a momentary fleeting experience of it and even if my i'm i'm no more significant than simply witnessing it, it as a bit of it right now thank you for listening for the videos of all 75 of my post-doom conversations, as well as other post-doom resources, visit postdoom.com.